1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This may be one of the hardest questions you'll ever have to answer on your homestead. It's a cold, windy, rainy day. I'd love to be cozied up by the fire inside sipping hot cocoa. But instead, I'm walking through the mud at my off-grid homestead, Sunny Mountain. Doesn't feel very sunny today. I'm trying to find an answer to a really hard question. I have 50 acres here. Where do I put my house? If you're ever thinking about starting an off-grid homestead or a homestead from scratch, this is a question you someday will have to answer. Whether it's five acres or 500, you'll have to pick a spot to put your home, and that's a pretty big and permanent thing. Choosing the right spot can save you on energy costs. It can keep your house warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. It can literally make your home last longer, like decades. Choosing the wrong spot, it could be a really bad, bad move. In this episode, we have a professional coming to help us decide where should we put our home? Let's answer that question. This homesteading ad is coming to you live from my bathroom. <laughs> Why? Because that's where I put on deodorant and that's what we're talking about in this ad. Natural deodorant from Laurel Mountain Soaps. This deodorant is what I use because I want to use a natural deodorant and this one doesn't give me a rash. A lot of natural deodorants give a lot of us an armpit rash. It's gross to talk about, it's a thing. Some of you out there are not bothered by baking soda in your natural deodorant. You're also not bothered by aluminum because it's not a natural deodorant. You're also not bothered by all the other chemicals and stuff you're trying to avoid in your natural deodorants. Unfortunately, those of us like me with sensitive skin, we don't do so well with baking. Is it baking soda or baking powder? Baking soda. A lot of natural deodorants have baking soda in them, which can irritate your underarms. For those of us with extra sensitive skin, they have their line of Moringa enhanced baking soda free deodorant. This is effective at keeping you from smelling bad. Moringa seed cake oil is antibacterial. It's antifungal. Do we grow fungus in our armpits? That's kind of gross. It's very effective at keeping odor away, but it doesn't change the pH of your skin. If you don't have sensitive skin, there's a whole lot of natural deodorants you can get from Laurel Mountain Soap that don't have the stuff you don't want and make you smell like you do want, 
But if you have really sensitive skin and you've had problems with natural deodorants in the past, like me, this is how I found Laurel Mountain. I was at my local farmer's market searching for a solution. I found it, it works, I use it. This is the only deodorant I ever use. We'll have a coupon code for you, coupon code HOMESTEADY. If you head to laurelmountainsoaps.com, put in coupon code HOMESTEADY for a discount off your order. Laurel Mountain, they support the show that you love. Check them out. You can get all kinds of stuff from them. Soap, lotions, creams, lip balms, and of course, my favorite product that they make, their Moringa Natural Deodorant. So today I have a guest on the show that I've been really looking forward to introducing you all to. What's up, y'all? Logan Parker, Heirloom Builders. Welcome back. We're at the Wedding Barn, and today... Meet Logan from Heirloom Builders. If all goes well, we'll be able to set these trusses next week and get a roof on here soon. He's been helping us make a lot of the really early decisions in our project, our off-grid home build. Today, he's here to actually help all of you. That is something to be stoked about. Because when it comes to building an off-grid homestead from scratch, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better source of information than Logan. You see, over the last 10 years, Logan has been living in an off-grid homestead, raising cows and chickens and pigs in a straw bale home he built himself. Where are you going to get your resources to survive another day and maybe have... You can learn a ton about this amazing life him and his family have built over the last decade in the YouTube trailer that he has on his YouTube channel, Heirloom Builders, which is a rap song. I'll tell you a little story about the way we roll. I built a straw bale, house dirt cheap. Building over time, I had no mortgage to strangle. So I put some solar panels up on an angle. And now I've got the power to live for free. I take it to the bank. Watch this and you'll see. I engineered a little rain tank right here that filters out the funk and gets it crystal clear. Now I've got everything that I need to live a simple life and start to plant some seeds. Now, he may be just a hobbyist when it comes to the music industry. No offense, Logan. But he's no hobbyist when it comes to the world of construction and building. He built his own home, but over the last 20 years, he has been a general contractor building homes and specifically building homes that are eco-friendly, efficient, green building methods, alternative building. The list goes on and on. Let me let Logan tell you a bit about what he does. I'm a general contractor in North Carolina, and we specialize in high-performance homes, and custom cabinetry. We always, we kind of look through the lens of how can we make or build things better? You know, we build straw bale homes, we build hempcrete homes, we build wedding barns, we build pretty much anything that is probably pretty scary and <laughs> unfamiliar to a lot of people, um, but it's exciting and challenging for us. All right, and we cool. kind of always look at things through a light or a lens of how can we build this better? I got my start in building back in 2004. Um, I was building out in California and building high performance, green, new construction and kind of learned everything from the ground up. So I started building a foundation. We framed the house, we trimmed the house, we built the cabinets. Um, and then pretty quickly thereafter, I got into 
um, remodeling a house that I purchased. I learned how to wire a house and how to plumb a house and how to put radiant hydronic heating in a house and started kind of diving into solar and energy efficiency and, you know, really how um, to incorporate ways that a home could be more than just a shelter and be something a whole lot more, something that would generate its own power that could capture rainwater um, for harvesting for all kinds of purposes, domestic purposes, for irrigation, um, for all of that stuff. Heating a home is really important too. So I was always interested in that, especially living in the mountains of California where the, my house was really cold in the winter uh, market in 2008 crashed. And um, so that was a mixed experience. We can go into that on another day. But um, after losing a whole lot of money and time and energy remodeling a house in California right before the economy crashed. I, you know, I lost everything. I think a lot of us have probably been in Logan's shoes. Really good idea, a good investment, bad timing. And that can completely ruin you. The market crashed, and when the dust settled, Logan was left with almost nothing. In that position, some people decide to give up. Not Logan. He decided to start over. But he was going to do things differently. Basically starting from scratch. And I was completely and utterly motivated to build a house that I could build with my own two hands. Um, minimizing how much like outside material that I needed to bring in to actually build the house. Um, so when I moved, I bought a piece of land in North Carolina after I moved from California. I, I wanted to set roots um, closer to family, which is in North Carolina. And um, I found a little five acre piece of land that was all pasture. It was kind of seemed to be the perfect setup. And so I started from scratch and, you know, started with a small setup. You know, literally I built, I pitched a tent on this piece <laughs> of land and built the smallest structure that I could. Just a quick reminder before we go any further, if you're a homesteady pioneer, there's an extended version of this podcast. It's twice as long. It's much more in depth. Click the link in the description to listen to the extended version. It'll take you right to it. Nice and easy. If you're not a pioneer and you want to listen to the extended versions of all our podcasts, it's five bucks a month. There's a link in the description to this podcast to become a pioneer. You help us make the show. And in return, you get the extended versions commercial free, which is awesome. All right, all you homestead dreamers, now's your time. Here is your permission slip. Close your eyes. Picture it. Don't, if you're driving, okay, don't close your eyes, but everybody else, close your eyes. Picture that plot of land. Something you found locally, something you traveled across the country for, wherever you want to be, wherever it is, picture that perfect parcel. Maybe it's five acres. Maybe it's 50. Maybe it's 500 acres. Whatever you want. And for those of you who aren't dreamers, I know there's some of you listening who actually have just purchased that plot of land. Well, picture your own plot. It's like a sheet of printer paper, totally blank, ready for you to draw whatever you'd like on it. And that's why this is really hard, because on an 8x11 blank sheet of paper, the choices are endless, and you could spend your whole life trying to figure out what you're going to draw. Well, Logan's going to help us. We don't need to spend eternity staring at the blank piece of paper. We're not going to suffer from writer's block, 
By the end of this episode, we're going to know how to design our homestead on our plot of land and how to start. So without further ado, let's dive in. Logan's steps for what to do after you get your land. Uh, Logan, congratulations. I just bought you a plot of land. What's the first thing you do when you show up to this plot of land to decide, you know, to get an idea of where it's going to head? I'm sure at that point, like, you know, like I was, you'll be completely, you know, excited beyond, beyond belief and, um, and also overwhelmed at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. such a big decision. The first thing um, that I like to think about is, is spend time there, you know, really observe I mean, if you can, if you can spend some time out on a piece of land before you buy it, which may not be an option, but if it is awesome, camp out there, you know, and figure out like walk around and, and, and observe the trees, see what kind of wildlife is out there. See, you know, observing the, the flora and fauna will tell you, you know, is there water out here? Is there, you know, natural food supplies out here? Is there an excessive amount of wind that's going to make it like uninhabitable? If it's got a couple um, of major drawbacks, then, you know, that's going to impact your decision. So, yeah, for sure. um, you know, observing, 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 spend as much time as you can out on the land, really reading the land as, as much as you can, and then check in on permitting. And the reason I say that is because typically, you know, beyond your, your initial observations, I mean, if you, if you're really thinking about buying the land, um, you want to go ahead and think about permitting. I mean, permitting is if you have a county building department or a planning department um, or the city, you want to figure out whose jurisdiction that property is so that you can talk to them and figure out what the legal constraints of, of you building. I mean, it may be that you've got this beautiful acreage that's totally affordable, but they won't let you build on it because it's in a floodplain. Um, you know, so you're going to want to kind of go through all the departments and check off all the boxes um, at least on an initial, um, check, uh, because you may run into a roadblock where it's like right away, you know, it's like, this is great, but you know, I can't build here. There's no soil for a septic system. There's, you know, it's, or it's on a big floodplain and we can't build here. It's a protected watershed or something like that. A lot of times, um, that information is available. People in those positions are there to help you not screw up. So you want to be as straightforward as you can about like the hoops that they need you to jump through and, you know, the forms that you need to sign and the things that you need to do. And, but that takes time. And so a lot of people want to jump right in and get started, but you don't want to jump the gun because if you start building a house in a place where that's the only good soil on the land and you don't have a place for a septic, you might've just made the cost of your project jump $50,000. What's the next step you would take Logan to say, all right, I've learned that I got to be this far from the, the border. And I've learned that, you know, I can't be my neighbor's house is over here and I need a spot here for a septic. At that point, where do you go next? We're going to be looking at all kinds of things. My goals are typically solar orientation um, you know, up in the Northern hemisphere, we want Southern exposure. That's where the sun, even in the winter is going to be fit, you know, shining from the South. So we want, we want to build in such a way that trees aren't going to be blocking our, our potential to generate energy or to passively heat the house. 
You have solar power, you have solar panels, you have battery banks. Some of our listeners are into that or want to be, they want to learn more. Others may say, you know what, I'm never going to do the solar thing. I don't really want to go completely off grid. You mentioned passive solar. What is passive solar? Passive solar is when you're just taking sunlight in and using the sun to heat up the inside of your home. So like my home is a straw bale home and it's got earthen plaster on the inside and a concrete floor. So both the earthen plaster and the concrete floor are very massive, very heavy, very dense materials that when exposed to the sun, they heat up. Um, there's no active, I'm, I don't have an element heating up the floor or the walls or anything like that. The sun directly and passively heats that up. There's no pumps required to circulate that heat. It's just the sun alone. So where you have a lot of windows on the south. And so, you know, the sun shines in the winter, the sun is lower and can get underneath your roof overhang and penetrate in through your windows. And in my situation, I have clear story windows and lots of windows on the south. So tons of light floods into the house and it literally just bakes the concrete floor and it heats up sections of plaster where the light shines on it and and that heat then it you know it heats up during the day and then at, when the sun goes down and it gets really cold outside that warm floor and that warm plaster that's passively heated by the sun just radiates back out at night all this means is making sure on your south facing wall there are a good amount of windows yep yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely formulas for it. Right, um, yeah. But, I mean, I've never really looked at a formula or, I mean, I've, I've probably looked at lots of formulas, but, you know, when when the rubber meets the road, it's it's really, you know, again, you're, you're dealing with lots of dis different decisions. Like, I want a window here right. because, yep. my, you know, this is going to be my living room and I want a window here because it's the bedroom. It's like, just maximize within reason. Let's transition now, Logan. We talked about passive solar. Is there any difference when you're choosing a location that's good for passive solar? Anything to consider if you're actually going to have a solar power system, if you're going to have, you know, your solar panels on the roof, battery banks in your shed or by the house, any additional things someone would want to consider? Trees. We talked about trees. I think, I think, you know, shading, you might have great access to sun in a model or on paper, but, you know, where are the trees that you really want to keep um, that might be good for shading? Um, are they deciduous trees? Deciduous trees versus evergreen trees are a big consideration because um, deciduous trees lose their leaves in the fall. And so you're left with a skeleton, um, which light passes through very easily and can still heat your home passively. And it can also provide a lot of power. So you may have shade in the summer, um, and, and passive solar in the winter still, it really just depends on what kind of building that you're building to really kind of prioritize this stuff. But for natural building, like straw bale, cob, hempcrete, um, these types of buildings with natural plasters, um, you're going to want some drying potential. So access to wind is a good thing. Too much wind is never really a good thing. And I say that because um, wind <laughs> wind can really dry things out in a bad way. You know, if you're gardening, you don't want a bunch of wind. It can literally, you know, blow your crops over. 
Um, it, you know, we've had rainstorms where it rains an inch and everything just soaks it up. And then the winds come and dry everything out like next day. And it's like, it didn't even rain. Wind can also do a lot of damage to your house. Um, if you're in a really high wind zone, which I feel like you might be at sunny mountain, but it's also, you know, for me and, you know, as a natural builder, um, with earthen and, and clay lime and lime plaster, you know, our house breathes. And, um, it's also, you know, one of those things where, you know, if rain just hammers it for days and days and it doesn't have the capacity to dry out, that can be problematic. Yeah. You really want some access to wind just to keep humidity down. And for us in, in the humid Southeast, having exposure to wind as a drying force really does lower the humidity, make the whole um, environment a lot more comfortable, you know, in the summer, especially, uh, we can sit out on the screen porch, but it might be hot and muggy. And, you know, if there's not a breeze blowing or if we're just in the, in the woods and it's hot and there's no wind, then it's going to be a lot more miserable. So, um, you know, breeze is good. Um, and you also want to be able to, um, catch that if you can. All right, you got your raw land? We've got a lot of steps covered already. Did you catch them all? Let's do a quick recap. Don't want you to forget any of these steps. The first one, what Logan likes to do very first thing, pitch a tent, do some camping, take a hike, observe the property. Take a look at it and try to do this over an extended period of time. It'd be great if you could see multiple seasons, multiple weather, windy days, dry, hot days observe. The next step, number two, you're going to head down to your permit office, your town hall, find out what you can build, what you can't build, if there's any setbacks, what legally can you actually do with this property. Ideally, you take those first two steps before you buy the property, but if you already got the property, well, make sure to do those first two steps before you start designing your future homestead. Step number three is solar orientation assessment figure out where the south is, figure out where the good sun is. If you're going to do some solar panels, make sure you have a good spot picked out for them. If you're going to do some passive solar, make sure you place your house in a place that can take advantage of the sun's energy. And step number four, do a wind assessment. Figure out where you're going to get enough wind to dry out your property, but not be exposed to too much wind, something that could be destructive to your home and your homestead. Okay, four steps down. We got a few more very important steps to go. We'll cover those when we get back from a word from our sponsors. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. 
Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. All right, so I want to keep moving because we're going to try to get everything about uh, location here. If you're listening or watching this and you want us to dive in deeper to just solar or just wind or whatever it is, let us know in the comments. And don't forget, Logan's got a ton of videos. you got to check out his house. We've been staring at Logan's house plans, videos for the last month or two. So I'll have links to that too as you're going through this episode. You can check those out later. Um, all right, so Logan, we talked about working with the sun, working with the trees, working with the wind. That's all 2D, right? You can see all that on a map. Now, what about when you pull up and you are on a mountain or you're on a valley? Like you, te- you talked about this a little bit with wind. As far as elevation on your property goes, is there's things to consider as far as do you put your house on the top of the hill or the bottom of the valley or somewhere in the middle? Yeah. Um, again, I think the best way to, to really um, pinpoint that is going to be observation. But generally speaking, um, experience in the woods, I would say that, you know, finding a campsite like midway up the hill is going to be your best house site or best place to camp. You know, being on the top of the hill, you're going to get lots of wind. I mean, anytime there's air moving, you're going to get it on top. So you kind of, that's why you kind of do want to be up hot. You don't want to be down in the valley because cold air sinks. And that's why you'll notice if you ever like hiking around and you, you know, come across a creek at the end of the day, you're like, oh, wow, I'm just crossing over yeah. and it's cold. Always cold on the creek. Yeah unless you've got an amazing view and a really super insulated house, um, I probably wouldn't build right on the top of the hill. I mean, you could do it with wind breaks and other, um, you know, you can, you can get creative to make the top of the hill work, but typically if you want the lowest energy input, you know, building not on the top of the hill, but somewhere on the, on the side of the hill. But then again, you know, you know, building a house on a slope is it's a lot of times it's not cost effective. It's just a lot of foundation work and drainage issues and stuff like that. So I guess that's the difference between setting up a tent and building a house. <laughs> I've slept in some tents on some uh, hillsides too. That's not much fun either. One thing we haven't talked about yet. Let's say you find you, you've, we've done all these calculations. Someone bought 500 acres. They're listening to this episode. They've gone through all these parts. They found the perfect spot that's got great solar and it's flat and it's out of a lot of the wind and it is at the farthest point back corner of the 500 acres and they got to put in a huge driveway. What do you want to factor in when it comes to, this is where I want my home to be, access? Yeah, that's a huge consideration, especially if, you know, the budget is a big constraint. Like I saw one of your earlier videos and that was one of the big selling points for Sunny Mountain. It's like, yeah. this place already has a driveway yeah. and you know, you could for that driveway. I mean, you're probably saving yourself 50 grand. Yeah. In the search for our off-grid homestead, we had narrowed it down to two potential properties. Crawdad Creek, our first option was a beautiful, heavily wooded property, but it did not have a driveway yet. And the location we wanted to put our home was going to be very far into this wooded piece of property, which meant a long driveway from scratch. I took my dad, who's an excavating contractor, been putting driveways and foundations for construction projects in at people's properties for decades now. 
I took him to the property and asked him what his quick ballpark figure would be for expense in putting a driveway in at Crawdad Creek. When we're looking at like a road, I mean, expense-wise, time-wise, just to get here and then across, what are we looking at? Well, you're looking at thousands of dollars just in machine work. Uh, if you're looking for an exact figure, I'd have to go back and measure and calculate and do some takeoffs and that sort of thing. But the real expense is over here. You've got some deep ravines to cross. We're talking large culvert pipes and filling to get across those. And you've got two or three of these. If you had to guess to get a driveway here and then maybe a stream or two over, just a quick guess, what would you say dollars and cents? Oh, you'd probably be $50,000 right here. Culvert pipe and gravel and machine time. That's probably probably on the shy side. It's it's a lot of work here. You have to strip off all the organic here. You got to get all the trees out of the way. You got to run some berms around the top or drainage around the top so your driveway isn't overrun all yeah. the time because everything is uphill here. Your yeah. driveway is down at the bottom. So you have to shed water all all the way here. Now, you got a lot of room to do it. You could do it with open culverts. It's easier to do it that way here. Yeah. But still, if you're, you're talking about a lot of time and money. So, although it is a beautiful site, I mean, just beautiful, all the water and the potential for the ponds, but compared to the sunny top property, that driveway's in, it's all cleared already. You are lots and lots of money ahead there already. This actually was the main reason we decided to instead build on Sunny Mountain. $50,000 in driveway expenses that we now got back in our pocket just by moving to a different property that already had a driveway. Yeah, that was a no-brainer. We just started framing a house that was on a lot that um, we had to clear 800 feet of driveway, which is probably not even half of your driveway, I'm guessing. And by the time we did all of the clearing and the road building and the gravel and the erosion control measures and all of that stuff, that driveway was close to 50 grand. Because right. um, when you're clearing a driveway, you know, you're not just putting gravel down unless you're, you know, already on a field or a pasture, you know, you got to cut the trees and you got to get the roots out of there and you got to grade ditches. Um, you know, there's a lot of earthwork involved in building a driveway. I mean, you're, it's a road if you want it to last, it's not just a gravel path through the woods. You know what I mean? If you want it to last, it's going to cost you some money. If you're going to do a hybrid or just start a homestead, I know a lot of our audience will listen to this wanting to start a homestead, but not doing anything off grid. Then you got to think about getting power in maybe water or sewer, depending on your county and if they make you do that or if you want to do that. So uh, that's going to multiply the work and the expense too, right? If somebody wants to bring power in, what do they have to consider if they're going to actually bring that into their property, Logan? You'll need to talk to the utility provider because a lot of a lot of them will give you a certain amount, like a credit of $6,000 to get power to your site. And beyond that, it's up to you to pay for it. Um, you know, some... Some utility providers will give you a certain amount of lineal feet that they'll trench power or put poles. Um, it's That's really going to de depend on um, your utility provider. And in a lot of cases, I mean, we've seen several builds go from um, we've got this house site and then all the, you know, they had already gotten underway and, and they were like, Hey, what, you know, what do you think about this? And they're like, we've got a house site. You're kind of committed. The power company just told them that they, um, 
you know, it was going to cost them 60 grand to get power out there. And they're like, I could be off grid for that amount of money. Now, something you need every day, chickens, cows, doesn't matter, water. And I know this has been for us a huge part of the story as far as where we go, where do we go, which property do we go with, and which projects do we start with. Uh, we talked about water as a setback, but now on the flip side, water for animals and of course people too. Anything to consider as far as wells, water on site, what do you factor in there, Logan? Um, water is a really important thing. I mean, water is life. Um, and it's going to allow you to live on a piece of land and raise animals. If we don't have it. It's not happening. Um, all that to say, there are ways to get water. Um, you just built a huge pond and, um, you know, that's a, you know, that is your cheapest, um, method of storing water per gallon is digging a pond. Um, you know, if you're going to be collecting water in cisterns off of rooftops and stuff, then, you know, you're looking at a dollar to $2 per gallon for collection and storage, much less the pipes and pumps to distribute it. So, you know, if you've got a big acreage and no water, no Creek or no ponds, um, that's going to be tough for you to get animals irrigated. Now, what about, we talked about the water that we're drinking, location to consider uh, considerations for septic, taking the wastewater away. Anything else to factor in there, Logan, to think about with house location? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit earlier, um, you know, checking with the health department and they're going to come out and do a soil survey and tell you where the good soil is for septic a septic system on your land. And it's important to do that first so that you, you know, use that as a constraint where you um, you know, you don't want to build anywhere on that, um, but you want to build close enough, ideally, and in a place where it is higher than that soil so that you can gravity drain to that septic leach field. Um, that's what, you know, that's one of the main constraints that we're looking at, honestly, for most of the homes that we build is kind of working within the, the septic soils. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge, especially on a smaller property, that's going to be a huge one. At this point, I think we've covered pretty much all all of the elements leading up to your homestead life, except for the one that we all like, most of us like the most, which is the animals, the plants, the pastures. When you, one of the other reasons we reached out to you to do this project and help us and give us some advice, you're a homesteader. You got animals, you got cows, you got pastures. When choosing a home location, what's some good advice for someone who wants to live a homestead life, have some gardens, have some animals? What are some other things they want to pay attention to there, Logan? Um, well, the, the biggest plus for me uh, in, in starting a homestead and the piece of land that I found was, um, well, proximity to my cabinet shop that I was basically working out of. And then second, and really the most important for homesteading was that it was all pasture already. It was a horse pasture. Um, so I, I literally just scraped the topsoil off and put in a driveway far enough to get in and, you know, park my truck while I, you know, camped out and, you know, brought in materials to start building structures. I mean, it was that easy and I could get animals out there. Um, for me, I have a sawmill and we use that to mill lumber for building cabinets and, you know, doing all forms of construction. Um, but it's a ton of work. So I, I really want people to understand that, you know, you might see this awesome wooded acreage 
that, um, you know, it's got all these trees that you could cut and use to build the house. And, you know, yeah, that's true, but you better be really young and have lots of help and or lots of time if you want to clear the land by yourself without hiring somebody to come in and clear it. Um, and that can get expensive too, um, depending on what it is and how much you're trying to clear. Um, if it's not a huge track of acreage, you're probably gonna have to pay for them to clear it. Um, if it's a big track, then, you know, you could sell the timber, but then again, you know, you know, I just want people to be cautious of that because, you know, unless you have an arrangement with, um, the timber company, it, they might leave a mess, which could take years to clean up. And, you know, I've seen it many times before where, you know, people are struggling to put up, um, fencing, you know, when they're, you know, trying to walk over big piles of brush and there's, you know, weeds everywhere coming up and you can't get a bush hog in there to turn it into pasture without spending days and days with a chipper and a stump grinder. You know, if, if you're raising pastured animals, um, it's hard to do that on a stump field with brush everywhere. Yeah. It's just, yep. you know, um, you just, you know, you can bring sheep and goats in and pigs and, you know, gradually work it if you got the time and energy to do it. But, you know, you want to think this kind of stuff through, like, um, you know, don't just see that big track of woods and act like oh, this is going to be where you build, you know, where you get all the timber to build the house with. And, you know, it takes a lot to clear enough pasture to get, you know, cows or sheep or, you know, chickens are a lot easier, but they don't take up as much space. And, you you know, if that's what you want, that's, to and, you know, you're just going to add fertility with chickens, then you can totally do that on a small acreage, just clear enough for the house and solar access, and then, you know, build a garden with that solar access. And you got plenty of trees to add leaves and build a garden with chickens. That's what we do. And, um, you know, that could work. It just depends on what scale. So really think about what your goals are in terms of homesteading and like what it's going to take to get you from the piece of land that's there realistically, you know, kind of walk your, walk yourself through step-by-step. Step. If you're doing poly wire fencing, like you and I do with our cattle herds, um, you know, you can't have big brushy snags everywhere. You're just never going to be able to, to, you know, graze animals um, in a situation like that. So, you know, there's, we dive, we dove into, Every, everything we could think of here tonight, so many different directions. Again, comment below or let us know an email if you want us to dive into something in depth. We can do a whole episode on these topics. Um, you know, parting advice. I know there's going to be people, I feel it myself at the end of this interview, a little bit overwhelmed. Like, oh man, there's so much to consider. There's so many things I could forget and do wrong. At the end of the day, Logan, what's your parting advice for someone who's trying to find that perfect spot, whether it's five acres, 0.5 acres or 500? What parting advice to let people, you know, remind people, you know, what are they trying to do here? Yeah, I would just reiterate that it's important to do the research, but not get overwhelmed or try not to get overwhelmed. Try to just, you know, make up your mind and do something because you're never going to find the best situation. You're never going to find the perfect situation. There's always going to be some kind of compromise. And sometimes you just got to say, look, I did everything that I could do to think this through and you just got to go for it.
I want you to rewind 10 years ago to the beginning of our story when Logan had a poorly timed investment go upside down, lost almost everything, and found himself in a tent on a bare piece of land, deciding to just go for it in the best way that he could, piece by piece, building this off-grid life for his family. He could have stared at that bare piece of property for another 10 years trying to design something perfect. He'd still have a blank piece of 8x11 paper because perfect doesn't exist. Instead, he did some research, he built some things, some things broke, he did more research, he built more things, he did better each time, and now he's an expert that we go to for advice, and you can too. If you want to ask Logan questions, learn more from his videos, or just follow along in his adventures. Yeah, check us out at heirloombuilders.com. It's H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M, builders with an S, dot com. In addition to his website, you can watch his videos on YouTube. Just search for Heirloom Builders. He's got plans you can purchase for his off-grid water system. He shares his house design. There's so much to learn about from Logan. We have been watching his videos, talking with him, and learning from him for the last couple months, and we're so excited that you get a chance now to learn from him too. Check out Heirloom Builders. Most importantly, do what Logan said. You just gotta go for it. Just go for it. Maybe it's building your homestead off-grid from scratch. Maybe it's getting your first egg-laying chickens. Maybe it's learning to butcher a pig. Whatever you've been thinking about, watching videos on, planning, learning about, it's time. Just go for it. Let us know in the comments what are you going to go for. What are you going to try? And keep following along as we continue to just go for it on Sunny Mountain, our off-grid homestead. Until next time, remember, the road is rocky. Make home steady. <laughs>